So it was 1882, and who was known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said, I fear that the Psalms are by no means being prized as they were in earlier ages of the church. So over a hundred years ago, Charles Spurgeon says, I'm afraid that the Psalms are not being prized like they used to be. What did he mean by that? What did he mean that the fact that the Psalms were prized in some way that in his day, probably even more so in our day, we might say they're not being prized The fact is that as you look through church history, early Christians used to memorize the entire book of Psalms. If you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, it is the longest book of the Bible. It is the middle of your Bible. It has the longest chapter in the Bible. So if you're having a hard time looking for it, if you don't want to look in the table of contents, just flip right in the middle. There's the book of Psalms. And this collection of poems and songs were memorized, put to tune, so that way Christians could easily memorize them. Some churches throughout history, in fact, required their pastors to have all the Psalter memorized before they could even be a pastor. Friends, I would not be able to serve as your pastor today. For in fact, there was one moment where I, in middle school, was at a church camp, and there was a challenge that The whole week was all these games, and every game you play, there's sports activities and arts and crafts competitions, and at the end, there would be a winner, and everybody was on teams. But if somebody memorized the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119, their team would get a million points, (laughs) and therefore kind of secure that you would, in fact, win. And Well, if any of you know me, I'm a bit competitive, So I took the challenge on, and I decided to forego all of my playtime during summer camp and memorize Psalm 119. And I don't know if you guys have been around young kids, but you have sponge-like minds, kids, and you can memorize things that as you get older, even though I'm not super old, but I'm starting to realize that, man, memory is hard to, like, memorize things the older I get. Well, I was able to memorize all of Psalm 119, and unfortunately, that's about as Good as it got in my days of memorizing the Psalms, and so hopefully you do not count that against me. And unfortunately, I have hidden it far away in my heart so far, I don't remember it anymore. (laughs) So, I ask you, friend, do you prize the Psalms? Is there a sense, as St. Jerome back in the early church said, that he could remember hearing them singing as people worked out in the gardens and in the fields and in the farms. The psalms were on their lips. And as we end this service, we will see that the psalms were on the lips of our Lord even as He died. I ask you, friend, do you prize the psalms with your life? The psalms have been prized throughout church history. In fact, part of the reason is because There is not one experience that you will endure that has not been experienced by the psalmists. There is no emotion that you will feel that has not been expressed. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer said about the psalms, whoever has begun to pray the psalms seriously and regularly, they will take a vacation from their little devotional prayer books. For ha, there is not in those books the juice, the strength, the passion and the fire that comes from reading the Psalms.
Am I the only one that would like a little more juice, a little more strength, passion, and fire in my spiritual prayers in life? Well, good news for you and for me. For the next 15 plus weeks, we will be studying the Psalms. Now, there's 150 of them, so what are we going to do? We're going to go through all 150 of them in 15 weeks? That would be quite the challenge. Instead, what we're going to do is take collections of them. And in this particular study, we're going to take one section, one collection of those psalms. Because, in fact, in front of you, there are hymnals, I think, right? There's some hymnals, Christian hymnals. There's books of songs that we sing as Christians. And they've been collected into books. And if you go through hymnals, you'll find that they are arranged, not necessarily alphabetically or when they were written or who they were written by, but they're oftentimes organized thematically. Similarly, the psalm book in front of you in the Bible is arranged. It had an editor that took all of these songs that were sung through the history of Israel, and maybe it was Ezra, some speculate. We don't necessarily know who edited, but the books were put together into collections. So if you open your Bibles to Psalm 1, you'll actually see that psalms are written into five different books, five collections. So on page 448, Psalm 1, you see the first thing is book 1. Book 1 begins in Psalm 1 and 2 with an introduction of what many have suggested is the introduction of the whole collection of psalms. The themes that you find in Psalm 1 about God's law, meditating on it day and night, are repeated throughout the whole Psalter. Then in Psalm 2, you find a promise of an anointed king. And this coronation psalm in Psalm 2 also is an introductory theme that continues throughout the rest of the psalms. Most argue that book 1 and book 2 have to do with David and his conflict with Saul and then him as king. But one of the things you may not realize is if you start to go over to book 2, so turn over to Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, it says book 2. But right before that is Psalm 41. And right before every time there is a transition from book 1 to book 2 and book 2 to book 3, there is what is called a seam psalm. It is like a transition. If you remember when I preach, there's a lot of times where I might summarize a point and then kind of make, okay, this is what I'm trying to say, and let's move on to the next point. And there's like a transitional statement being made. Well, in the psalms, in between each book, there's a transitional psalm, and all of them end with this final verse, verse 13 of Psalm 41. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And just to show you, turn over to Psalm 71, or 72 that is, and you will see, again, book 2 concluding, going into book 3, seem Psalm 72, ends in verse 19, blessed be the glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This now concludes the prayers of David. So this is why I said books one and two are mostly about David, conflicts with Saul in book one, and David as king in book two. Seem Psalm 72, amen and amen, and then we transition to book three. We could continue on like this, but I don't want to be, get overly academic to you. I just want you to see that the Psalms 
have collections and themes, and they're put together intentionally. So therefore, what we're going to do over the next 15 weeks is not study all of the Psalms, but we're just going to take one specific collection. And so if you would, let's turn to Psalm 120. This would be in book 5. So we're in the fifth book, which most would argue is about praising and thanking God for the return of Israel from their exile and the rebuilding of the temple. And so Psalm 120 is a small collection within a bigger collection. So think of, you know, different layers here of collections. In book 5, there's a Hallel collection from Psalm 111 to Psalm 118. All of them have hallelujah in them, so that's why they're called the Hallel Psalms, and they were sung during certain festivals. Then there's the Psalm 119. That's the one I memorized that I told you about earlier. That's a collection of poems that are alphabetical using the Hebrew alphabet and having every first line start with that Hebrew alphabet. So alpha, beta, or not, uh, that's the Greek alphabet, sorry. Uh, Aleph, bet, vet, gimel, dalet, hey, and it just goes down the Hebrew alphabet. It was an easy way to have memorization techniques for kids and adults. So you see that there's collections and there's organization in the way these are put together, uh, not just by their poetic consonants of the same Hebrew letter, but also by their theme. All of Psalm 119 has repeated phrases of God's law, the Torah. Remember I said Psalm 1, the introduction of the whole psalm book? What was the theme? Meditate on the Torah, the law, day and night. And so you have an extended meditation in Psalm 119 on the Torah. Then when we transition from Psalm 119 to Psalm 120, we start a new collection. This collection is called the Psalms of Ascents. So look at Psalm 120. Before you even get to the first verse, you have a subscript, a song of ascents. Then Psalm 121, drop your eyes down, a song of ascents. And you keep seeing this again and again until you finally get to Psalm 134, a song of ascents. Therefore, these psalms are called the Psalms of Ascents. They are a collection together. So the question now is, what is this collection unified by? Psalm 119 was obvious. There's these Hebrew alphabet collection tying it together. There's the theme of God's law tying it together. The Hallel Psalms were sung during celebrations of the Jewish festivals, and they all had hallelujah in them. That brought them together. So what brings these psalms together? And that's where there's all kinds of debate and discussion. The most common argument for the sake of giving you all the different ones is that it is ascending or degrees or steps of moving upward toward Jerusalem. Some will argue that it's more specifically at the temple steps. So for the sake of illustration, imagine me being a priest and I'm on the day of Passover or Pentecost. And what I would do is I would start with Psalm 120 and I would take my first step up and I would recite from memory Psalm 120. Then I would take step two, and then I would recite Psalm 121 until I get to the top all 15 steps. That's one Hebrew tradition from the Hebrew book Mishnah, saying that this is what they would do as they went up the steps. The problem is, historically, there's not really much supporting that. So therefore, most scholars have argued that this is a journey from exile to the temple celebrating in the theme of all of book five of this return of exile, it is a pilgrim psalm. It is a psalm of being far off and moving near to the presence of God. So in fact, look at Psalm 120, verse five. 
Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Both of those locations are hundreds of miles away in the opposite direction, one north and one south. So if you think of where Jerusalem is today, or even then, and then think of where the Black Sea is and where Turkey is, so very far north. And then if you want to think where the uh, Arabian uh, area, Saudi Arabia, this is where the second location, Qadar, would have been in the desert. So you have two extreme places that he's referring to. And so it's saying, woe is me because I am far away from Jerusalem. And then in Psalm 121, look at the way he says in verse 1, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Well, what are the hills? The hills are the hills of Jerusalem. He looks up and he's heading toward Jerusalem. And so we go and eventually you get to Psalm 133, 134. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. So now you have God's people together in unity. You've got the oil falling down on the beard of Aaron. And so there you have the priests gathering. And then in Psalm 134, you see they are standing in the house of the Lord. The servants of the Lord in verse 1 of Psalm 134 is the technical term for the workers in the temple that would offer the sacrifices. So in other words, if you can just get a big picture here, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, you have the psalmist being so far from Jerusalem and looking his eyes in Psalm 121 toward Jerusalem, and then eventually all of God's people are gathered together in Psalm 133, how beautiful it is to be united with God's people, having the priests anointed with oil, and then making sacrifices and worshiping God in his holy temple. So there you have it. Their pilgrim journey from being far off to being near to God's presence, that's the collection that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. One psalm a week will begin today with Psalm 120. It's no wonder that Martin Luther called the psalms in general and even these different collections a mini-Bible because, in fact, what you're seeing is that these collections are put together intentionally to retrace the story of Israel and tell you about what God has done and what he will do. So, friend, I hope that whether it is your prayer life that you hope to be juiced up, as Bonhoeffer put it, or even your theological mind sharpened as you see the way the Bible has been formed strategically, importantly, as we read this book and these psalms and this collection, that you'll be strengthened, encouraged, and that you will, in fact, experience God. So, let's begin with Psalm 120. Our outline is going to come straight from verse 1. Let me read that to you. In my distress, that's point one. I called to the Lord, that's point two. And he answered me, that's point three. I think in this first verse, we see the outline of all the important materials of Psalm 120. So let me read the psalm in its whole, but as we read it, I want you to ask the question, what is the distress, what is the prayer, and how did God answer? In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you? your deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. 
Outline point number one, in my distress. So what is the distress of the psalmist? And just so we make it clear, this could be an individual psalmist writing of his individual experience. We have no historical footnotes or subscripts telling us, well, this is when David was being chased by Absalom or some sort of story like that in the Old Testament. We don't necessarily know who wrote it. It could be David, but that's not sure. What we know is what's here. And what we see here is that lying lips, deceitful tongue, feeling far from the presence of God in verse 5, and being surrounded by those who hate peace, even though I am for peace. I'm trying to make peace, but even when I try, it just turns out into war. Therefore, the title of this message is War and Peace. Peace in the midst of war is what we see in this psalm. That's the distress. Lying lips, deceitful tongue, surrounded by those who don't want to make peace, and feeling far from God's presence. I ask you, friend, when was the last time you felt this way? When was the last time you felt these specific feelings of distress? Have you ever been lied against? Do you know what it's like to be in distress and the pain of deceit and slander. We don't know whether or not these lies are coming from outsiders, enemies, and foes. That would be my guess, especially in the theme of verse 5, being far off and away from Jerusalem. Maybe it's Gentiles and enemies of God's people, persecution against God's people for following him. But they could have very easily been the lies and deceit from the loved ones around us. And those hurt, certainly hurt much more. The scriptures in the New Testament don't pretend and act like God's people are somehow immune from slander or deceit. In fact, some of us in this church have experienced brothers and sisters within the church that have lied against us. Pastors, church leaders. James 4.11 warns us, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law, and judges it. Ephesians 4.29 helpfully encourages us to not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only that which is helpful for building each other up. This is what should mark us as Christians, as God's people, that our speech should be that of truth and honesty. We should be able to be transparent and share the things that are going on and not fear that people are going to gossip about the issues that we share with them. But as a pastor, I have unfortunately heard too many sad stories from whether it being even instances in this church or in previous churches where some of you have been so devastated by the lies and deceit of even brothers and sisters in the church, let alone those outside the church that would want to say awful things about brothers and sisters and Christians in the faith. As a pastor of embassy, and speaking on behalf of the rest of the elders, I want to let you all know, as much as possible, part of the reason why we take membership and discipline in this church serious is we just can't tolerate this to be the sort of thing that happens in this church. We would not tolerate speech like this because it leads to deep distress in people's lives. It hurts. I don't know who came up with that awful saying, but sticks and stones may break my bones, but words do hurt you. I would imagine for most of us, the greatest scars in this life will not be the scars physically that we experience, 
for those emotionally, spiritually, when people use their authority or their relationship and the closeness that you've experienced with them and they hurt you with biting, cutting, awful words. Some of the greatest pains we will feel and the emptiness and the far reaches of feeling God's presence will because of the hurt and pain we feel when someone speaks out against us. So I ask you, not have you just experienced that now or recently, is there any sense to which you're surprised? In my distress, one observation we should make from this psalm is that, friends, there will be distress. And like I just said, we're going to try as best as possible to make sure that we grow in godliness as a church, that we try and nip those things right away and not tolerate that sort of character among Christians. But because of the sin that remains in all of us as a church, there may be still distress to come from the biting and unhelpful words of even people in this room, maybe even from me. I pray it not so. I pray that we would be a church that would strive toward speaking truth in love, speaking only that which would build each other up and help one another. I think we would be just foolish and ignorant if we started to act like distress from deceitful words and lying tongues will not, in fact, still be a part of this life. Whether they are from within or without of the church, I think all of us should gear up our minds, our hearts, and prepare ourselves for further distresses until Christ returns. Just know that it's probably not a coincidence that his distress of lying lips and deceitful tongue often leads to him feeling, woe is me that I am sojourning so far from the presence of God's temple and his presence. I think it seems that those who are hurting, especially from lying lips and deceitful tongues, are those that are having the hardest time experiencing the presence of God. They don't feel like God has loved them. We question and we ask, I thought God was good. How could he let this happen to me? Especially by people who said they loved me. The reality is that as pilgrims journeying toward God, we should realize that suffering on this road will only get more intense and more difficult. So if you want to embark the journey of the Psalms of Ascent, realize they start low, very low. The good news is that they get better quickly. In Psalm 121, we see much hope and help from God. But before we get there, how does the psalmist respond? In my distress? Well, how did you respond? If you've experienced these feelings in the past or even recently, if you're experiencing them now, how have you responded in your distress? Point two, in my distress, I called to the Lord. We need to know and be confident that it is safe to pour our hearts out to God. Here's three options that we normally have in distress and pain and hurt when lying lips and deceitful tongue comes our way. First, some of us are uncomfortable, and therefore we deny or suppress the reality of these pains, and we keep them hidden inside. Second, some of us take the wisdom of the world and say that we need to express and follow our feelings, so we vent, we dump, and we unhelpfully gossip and share, or sometimes we repay evil for evil. If someone hurts us, let's hurt them back. 
You see these two extremes? One is to say nothing at all and just act like it never happened. The other is to say way too much to way too many people, especially try and hurt those who hurt you. Both are bad. The third option, the option of the scriptures and the psalmist here, is to respond with praying your feelings to God. We must learn as Christians that when this pain comes, we give our distress and we submit those experiences and feelings to God. Now, I understand that those of you that are on this end of the spectrum, that you would like to run away from it, pretend like it doesn't happen, not talk about it to anyone, especially you don't even want to talk to God about it. Because talking about it to anyone, even God, is bringing it up again, and it hurts to bring it up again. Why would I want to relive those memories or those feelings or those thoughts? Well, in part because if we don't deal with those feelings and issues and hurts, we will grow bitter in our hearts, we will be unforgiving, and oftentimes we become all the more angry. And this would not serve and help any of us in our lives. So, this option, even though it might seem on the outside, well, that's a good option. I'm not hurting anyone else. No, you're hurting yourself. So, on the other hand, before you go and try and repay evil for evil or address the issue, well, I need to address this lying that's happened and justice should be met. Step number one should always be come to God first. Address your issues with God so that way you are prayed up, so to say, or you have dealt with the forgiveness that needs to be dealt with and you have looked to the cross So go to God before you gossip and go to anyone else, or even before you address the issue with someone else. The third option, the biblical option, is in your distress. Call to the Lord. Ask him, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Remind yourself of the goodness of God and his character. Realize that these psalms exist so that you know that God will hear you in your prayers of distress. The commentator Derek Kidner said the very presence of such prayers in the scriptures through the Psalms is a witness that God understands and knows how we speak when we are desperate. The Psalms show where your deepest feelings, your angers, your tears truly belong. Ultimately, your tears belong not in a managed, packaged, manicured, scripted prayer. Your tears belong and the reflective outbursts from the depths of your being in the very presence of God. Call out to him with exactly the way you're feeling. These psalms of lament, as they've been categorized throughout the psalms, there's psalms of praise and there's psalms of lament. This would be a lament psalm if it wasn't obvious. Sadness, darkness, distress, they're so brutally honest. Therefore, we too should speak to God with brutal honesty about what we're feeling and not feel afraid that God won't understand. He does understand, and he wants you to journey toward him, ascend from the depths of your distress, and bring your tears and your pains to him. But the question you're asking is how? I want to hide and run. I want to fight. I want to repay evil for evil. How? How do I go to God in my distress and respond appropriately? In my distress, I called to the Lord. Point three, he answered. He answered. What is the answer that he got from the Lord? What is the answer that the Lord provided? 
words. Verse 3 and 4. What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, what's going on there? In fact, what in, what in the world is a broom tree? Well, if you're interested, it's a 12-foot plant that grows in the desert, and apparently when you burn it, it gets really hot. It produces some long-lasting charcoal. So there you go. The best of the best charcoal found in the broom tree in the Middle East desert. The point here is that I believe the psalmist is referring to what is in also another psalm earlier, where God takes the deceitful arrows of the wicked one and turns them on his own head, and he receives the judgment that he gave. So what you gave will come back on your own head, and so he's referring to the judgment of God. He's referring to the justice, the righteousness of God, that God will not sweep this under the rug like the church shouldn't, and we will not have to face a God when we pray to him that tolerates these things. He doesn't. There will be judgment for these people. So the answer is, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So do not repay evil for evil. This is, in fact, the way Paul summarized this in Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Therefore, heap burning coals back on their own head by being kind and loving to those who have been evil to you. So the answer, notice, the answer here is trust in the justice and righteousness of God. Realize that the God that we worship in the Psalms and the God we worship of the whole Bible is a God of righteousness and justice, and therefore all sin will be held to an account. All sinners will be held accountable, and all sins will be paid for. We don't get the answer for how that happens here in Psalm 120. That's why it's a collection in a bigger collection of Psalms, and that's why it's a segment of a book in a bigger book. Therefore, we should always read the Bible in its context. And friends, we should know that this Psalm, even though it doesn't provide all of the answers of how God answers fully this righteousness and justice, we know as Christians looking back that God answers this prayer with the righteousness of God demonstrated in the cross of Christ. Think with me for a second. This psalm begins in distress. It ends with war. And in the middle is judgment. My guess is many of you don't have this one memorized. My guess is none of us are saying, I'm putting this one in my heart. But you know someone who did. You know someone who owned this psalm. You know someone who lived this psalm. His name is Jesus. He was in deep distress. And this distress was in a direct result because of lying lips and deceitful tongue. As we make this journey through the Psalms, we're going to be overlapping with Easter and Good Friday service. We'll be reminded freshly during this time that the Jesus who died on a cross and rose again from the dead, that Jesus was sentenced to that cross because men falsely accused him. Do you remember the trial? The men that they got to try and make false accusations about Jesus? 
And do you remember the way that even though he was reviled, he did not revile back? Even though they spoke lies against him, he did not repay evil for evil? Therefore, our example here is Jesus. In his deepest distress, what did he do? He prayed the Psalms. A year ago, we went and did a small study in this church on the words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Do you realize that half of them were Psalms? Jesus prayed the Psalms as he hung on the cross. In his deepest distress, he was reciting from memory, I would imagine. Because if you're a good pastor, you probably have to have the Psalms memorized. And Jesus was the best shepherd pastor there ever was. And he's reciting from memory the Psalms. The interesting thing is this. In this psalm, it says that the people who deserve the sharp arrows of God's judgment and the burning coals of the broom tree is those who spoke lies. The divine irony of the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who never once had deceit on his lips, never once deserved the piercing arrows or the glowing coals. He's the one who faced the judgment you and I, who are liars and deceitful people, deserved. Oh, the beauty and the irony of the story of the gospel. The words that were read to us earlier in our assurance of pardon were from 1 Peter chapter 2. Do you remember them? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But... What did he do? He lived out Psalm 120. He continued entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. Do you see, my friends, how Jesus Christ on the cross perfectly lives out Psalm 120? He trusts in the justice of God. He does not revile those who are speaking and lying against him. And he takes on the judgment you and I deserve. This gospel, this Jesus, is the one whom we should be praising as we sing and we reflect on Psalm 120, friends. How beautiful. How amazing. Therefore, you and I should in our distresses call to the Lord who came down and met us where we were at, experienced the distress that only we deserved, took it on himself. And when he cried out to the Lord, the Lord said, I will not take that cup. Do you remember what I said last week? The reason why you can know God will answer. In my distress, I called on the Lord and he answered. Is he going to answer me? The reason you know that he will answer is because one terrible day, Jesus, when he called, got the answer, my will is for you to experiencing the burning coals of the broom tree, to fall prey to the judgment of God. That's the worst answer you and I could ever hear from God, and we will never hear it because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus saying, not my will, but yours be done, you and I should have confidence that in our distress we can call on the Lord who knows and wants to hear us cry to him. In conclusion, Eugene Peterson, the man who wrote and translated the Bible, as you might know, the Message Bible, 
he wrote a commentary on the Psalms of Ascent. And so in his commentary, he talks about a variety of different things, but as he talks about the Psalms, he says one of the things we need to realize is that the Psalms are teaching us that no matter how desperate you begin your prayers and your journey, no matter how angry or fearful you feel, when we go to God, we end in praise. It does not always come there quickly. It does not always get there easily. In fact, it may feel like this journey takes a lifetime, but the end is always the same. When we go to God with our distresses and our fears and our anxieties, the end of the psalm book ends in praise. This is not to say that other kinds of prayer are inferior to praise, but that all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. So when we come to him in our distress, he meets us in our distress, and through praying to the Lord, we end in joyful praise. Sorrow comes at night, but joy comes in the morning. That's the shape of the Psalms. Remember the whole Psalms are put together collectively and organized purposefully? The whole first two books, David is down, down down in distress. How do the Psalms end? Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149. They all are praise to God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, I will praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise the Lord. Sing to Him a new song. Praise the Lord. Praise Him in his sanctuary. On and on it goes. All five of these books form a conclusion to the Psalms. So as Eugene Peterson says, we might start down in distress, but when we bring our prayers to God, when we pray the Psalms, when we see the shape of what God's doing through the Psalms and hear his story, our joy comes in the morning. We praise the Lord. Friends, I'm going to have an enjoyable time studying the Psalms over the next few weeks. I pray you'll make time to come back each week as we journey through these Psalms and ascend from this low point and finally meet God in His temple. And in Christian language, here in the New Testament, that temple is found in the person of Jesus. So the Psalms of Ascent will eventually and every week end as we ascend to Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how ought we to pray but now praise you with all that we have, with the lips, with our lives, we want to give you praise, we want to give you thanks. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in the heavens and on the earth, in the sea. And in the mountains, we praise you, Lord. We want to praise you with our hands and with our feet. We want to praise you with all the instruments that you've given us for righteousness. God, we praise you that you are good and you are great, that your word is beautiful, and that it has been wonderfully collected and put together. God, we praise you that your word is clear and it is true, and we can know it and believe it and hear it praise you, God. We praise you that you have given us Jesus Christ, the one who embodied and lived Psalm 120, 
more than any of us will ever feel. He felt distress. Lying lips and deceitful tongue, the only one who's never uttered lying lips and deceitful tongue, but received the curse that liars should receive. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that even when we feel far from your presence, you come to us and you meet us in our distress. You come out of your holy temple. You come down from heaven. You pursue us. Thank you, God, that even when the whole world seems to be surrounding us with war, and even if we're trying to pursue peace and it seems like we're not getting anywhere, we can have confidence today that your story ends with praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We give praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.